Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by Mies, the revolutionary new interactive recipe tool for professional chefs and cooks. Designers use Figma, photographers use Photoshop. Now, finally, chefs have the right tool for recipe development, management, training, and evolution with Mies. Like Mise en Place, the term that inspired its name, Mies helps chefs and cooks be organized, ready, and efficient, save time and money, eliminate mistakes and redundancies, and guarantee consistency, whether in one restaurant or across a multi-unit company. Visit GetMees, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z dot com forward slash Andrew to learn more and sign up for a free trial membership. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. And it's like cooking. There's a fear in cooking improvisationally that you may or may not make it out the other side with a great dish. And then you go like, oh yeah, this is coming together. This does make sense. Oh yeah, that ingredient, pull it in. That's going to provide the zing. And yeah, of course. And you go like, well, of course, that's the recipe. That that makes total sense. But it didn't exist at, at the beginning of the process. That is the voice of Peter Hoffman, chef and author of the forthcoming memoir, What's Good? If your menu has a lot of things that are safe for people with nut allergies or celiac, mark the menu online. Put as much thought into being hospitable to this population of people as you do to telling the story of your restaurant and the five paragraphs of your chef's 30-year history. You know, like put five words in about accessibility. And that is Jacqueline Raposo, who recently wrote about expanding the definition of accessibility in restaurants and a post or late COVID world. They are our guests today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope this finds all of you out there doing well. Our feature guest this week is Peter Hoffman. That's a name I expect many of you know. Peter, of course, is the legendary chef and owner of the restaurant Savoy, which had an almost 30-year run in New York City's Soho neighborhood. Next week, he will release his new memoir entitled What's Good?, It's an extraordinary book. I loved reading it. I love the conversation Peter and I had out in the backyard of his home in Greenwich Village, New York City. And I look forward to sharing that with you just a little later in the show. And in our news and commentary segment, the lineup 
freelance writer and podcast producer Jacqueline Raposo joins us to expand on her recent piece for Grub Street all about expanding the definition of what accessibility means for restaurants in a post or maybe we should say late COVID world. That's coming up in just a minute or two. And we are also introducing a new segment this week. It is called Andrew Talks to Chefs Classic Moments. We're going to run it in the mid-show. And it's a way of pointing you to our catalog of about 300 guests that we've assembled over the last few years. It is now easier than ever to peruse and search through. I'll explain all of that when we get to that segment. Also, as he does every week, Brad Metzger, founder of Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, or BMRS, which is one of our sponsors, will join us later in the show to share some of the most appealing and high-profile positions the firm is seeking great candidates for. Maybe that's you or a friend of yours who you might tell about one of the jobs that you hear about. If you're unfamiliar with them, Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions was founded by industry veteran Brad Metzger, whose first kitchen job was under Wolfgang Puck at the original Spago. BMRS Hospitality Recruitment matches top-level hospitality professionals with some of the best jobs in the industry, both across the United States and internationally. If you are looking for the next step in your career, from conventional positions like executive chef, pastry chef, and sous chef, to dining room positions like general manager, director of operations, or manager, to outside-the-box directions like R&D and private chefing, BMRS should be the first stop on your quest. There's never a cost to you, the candidate, and BMRS adheres to the strictest confidentiality standards. So please reach out and begin a conversation with them today, whether to pursue a specific current listing or just to be sure you're on their radar so they can reach out to you when your dream position crosses their desk. As Brad himself likes to say, it never hurts to see what else is out there. Learn more at restaurant-solutions.com. Keep an eye on their Instagram feed that is at BMRS Food Jobs for some of their marquee listings. And BMRS has created a special email address just for our listeners. Again, that means you. Send a resume, if you like, to ATC at restaurant-solutions.com or call 310-245-5108. However you reach out to them and whomever you speak to there, be sure to let them know that Andrew sent you. Before I get to all of that, I want to share, as I do every week, some dining experiences that I had over the last seven days. This is something I've been doing both in an effort to point people to experiences that I enjoy that I think you might enjoy, and also just to encourage listeners to get out there and start dining again in earnest, however you're comfortable doing that. On Memorial Day, this past Monday, just a few days ago, I was in the city. I actually gave my wife, Caitlin, a lift in for something she had to do, and I was kind of knocking around, killing time until she was ready to head home. I wandered over to King Restaurant, which is the restaurant run and owned by Jesse Shadbolt and Claire DeBoer. They were on the show a couple of years back. Uh, they are two chefs who met and trained together at the River Cafe in London. Uh, after the fashion of that restaurant, they have their own uh, Italian restaurant here in New York City on King Street, hence the name King. And I was lucky enough to snag a table. I think they were fully committed that night, but I explained to the 
host or whoever, I don't know what they titled the person at the, at the podium. I said, look, I have about a half hour. I want to have one course. Can you spare a table for me? They sat me outside at a lovely table and I had an amazing hanger steak with pureed uh, barlotti beans and arugula and a, a one little pepper kind of perched on top of the steak. King is a restaurant that changes the menu every day. And I have to say, this dish just hit me right between the eyes. It was just perfection. I had a great time. I also, as fate would have it, one of my friends and also someone who's a sponsor of the show, Filippo Mazzaia, was there with his uh, girlfriend, Natalia. Natalia, I don't want to butcher your last name here on the air. They happened to be there. So I ended up joining them after I had my dinner and had uh, just hung out with them, had a little water and wine with them for a few minutes. That was a lovely surprise, a great way to end the holiday weekend. I had my third dinner, I think, in, in very recent memory at Kamika Restaurant, where Christine Lau, who was on the show a few weeks ago, is the chef. It's a menu that combines Japanese and Italian influences quite successfully. It's getting a lot of attention. I think it's all deserved. And that meal was just as it has been every time I've been there. A lot of fun and really extraordinary. And the staff there is so in to what Christine and her team are doing that I just can't recommend that restaurant highly enough. And then uh, last week on the eve of the Memorial Day holiday, I attended something a little unusual. It's something that's picking up a lot of steam. Uh, they had been paused for a while due to the winter season and the pandemic, but they are now are back in full force. Resident, which is a company that does dinners in private locations. They often partner with luxury apartment buildings here in New York. They often stage the dinners on the terraces of apartments. In this case, it was a penthouse apartment. It was quite a luxurious, spacious terrace down in the financial district. They recruit or work with up-and-coming talent. Often it's people who are at the sous chef level. I believe all the chefs they work with are people with experience in Michelin-starred kitchens, and they provide the rest of the experience. Resident provides the service, the wine, the setting, of course, and the chefs can just focus on their food. In this case, Luis Herrera, who was the chef, did a Mexican-inspired five-course dinner. The whole thing was just great. I absolutely loved it. If you want to learn more about them, you can look them up on Instagram or you can find their website. Uh, often uh, the handle is Meet Resident, M-E-E-T, Resident. I do want to be transparent. I did an article about Resident a little while back. I've, I've been in touch with the people there. We have some common interests. They invited me to come as their guest. I think it's important to acknowledge that, but that in no way influences my enthusiasm for the experience, which was just first rate from top to bottom. So in the lineup, our weekly news and commentary segment this week, Jacqueline Raposo joins us. Jacqueline is someone I've known. She's a colleague, a fellow writer, uh, also a podcast producer, someone I've met a little bit over the years, once or twice. We had a lunch together several years back just to, to meet each other because we are colleagues. She wrote an article for Grub Street recently titled, What Did the Pandemic Teach Chefs About Accessibility? Now, Jacqueline herself lives with chronic illness disability. She explains exactly what it is that she has to contend with on a daily basis in the interview. But the piece really got me thinking. And just to briefly set this up, the point it made was for the last 
year and a quarter or so, there's been an accessibility limitation placed on all of us, right? We couldn't go to restaurants in most places. If we could, uh, what was available was limited or the capacity was limited. And restaurants did what we now refer to as pivoting. And they designed incredible, in many cases, takeaway models, delivery models, shipping models, etc. Those offerings now, as the pandemic recedes, have started to recede. And Jacqueline's piece takes a look at the lessons of the pandemic, which is that it's very possible to make what restaurants offer available and accessible to people who have not just very apparent disabilities or illnesses, for example, maybe someone who's in a wheelchair or someone who's blind, but also make these experiences accessible to people who maybe aren't so obviously challenged. And the piece really got me thinking about how many people there are out there who we probably don't recognize or think of as people who are living with illnesses or disabilities, but who do and who are challenged when it comes to enjoying a restaurant experience in a way that most of us take for granted. Also, as Jacqueline points out in this conversation, there are now millions of people who are newly afflicted with long COVID, effects of COVID that are lingering probably for the rest of their lives. So it's an especially relevant subject at this vector of time that we find ourselves at right now. I don't think I need to say any more about it as a lead-in. Before sharing my conversation with Jacqueline, let me please remind you that the lineup is sponsored by Mies, the revolutionary recipe sharing, training, scaling, and costing tool for professional chefs and cooks. Just as we help you make sense of industry news, Mies helps you organize your recipes. Learn more and sign up at getmes.com slash Andrew. And with that as prologue, here is my conversation with Jacqueline Raposo. Jacqueline, thank you for joining us to talk about this subject. As I told you when I wrote to you, I really enjoyed and found compelling the piece that you just wrote last week for Grub Street. Why don't you, in your own words, what was sort of your motivation, the impetus for for writing that piece? Because it was something I, I don't think I'd quite heard that subject addressed in quite the terms you laid it out until I'd read that article. Well, the idea of reporting on the intersection of disability and food has been with me for several years being a disabled food writer and a food writer who started as a chronically ill food writer and then over the years has become more disabled and therefore progressively more removed from the actual restaurant dining room. I've had these experiences for myself and those I've observed from my fellow chronically ill and disabled community And nobody really is making these connections in food journalism, and nobody really even wanted to explore these stories until all of a sudden the pandemic literally brought people into the disabled space in a way. The the idea that all of a sudden going into lockdown, going into a homebound life, which I am not 100% homebound. A lot of disabled people I know aren't, but we live varying experiences of we cannot just go where we want. We have all of these other means of accessing public space and the word access all of a sudden being understood in a different way by the general population. That changed entirely this last year and a half-ish 
for the world, for for food, for entertainment, for education, for healthcare. And it was something that isn't new in the last couple of weeks that I thought of. Chronically ill and disabled people realized that we were all coming together and this space was being shared in a different way as soon as the pandemic started happening. And so that's sort of where just now I wanted to make sure now that the world is opening up for everybody else again, and we are still here, our lives are still indefinitely variations of pandemic housebound quarantine living, I want people to know that we are here. We are a population of people who are not considered um, in hospitality very often or are an afterthought or are a question mark or are a fearful conversation. Even the word disability, disabled, is not, it's not nearly one you know, word or one experience. And it's very, I, I learned from other disabled people, we're always, con- we're always conversing with each other. We have all of these beautiful shared experiences. It's a beautiful population of people. And very few people not in the community have recognized that there is a crossover between this pandemic world and the disabled population. And very few people recognize that there is an intersection uh, between the joy of dining and disability. That disability and food does not have to mean Uh, Food poverty does not have to mean only, you know, meals on wheels services for disabled people does not have to mean, you know, lack of for disabled people, that there is joy of dining for disabled people, that there could be more access for the beautiful world of food for disabled people. Before we go any further, and I don't think I'm putting you on the spot with this. I think you actually mentioned it in the article. It's something you mentioned in your social media. Can you just tell people what it is that you live with that puts you in this broad category you're describing and how it affects you as a diner? Of course, yeah. And this was actually the hardest thing to figure out how to write in the story, um, to figure out how to take 30 years of illness and put it into two paragraphs that people could understand. I got, uh, I got diagnosed with late disseminated Lyme disease when I was around 12 years old, which means that I got Lyme disease and was not actually diagnosed with it for, uh, we're estimating 14 months. And now it is known that if you have Lyme disease for six months and don't get treated, it's now it is called, you know, 30 years later, almost it is called late disseminated Lyme disease. And you are basically guaranteed that you will have chronic conditions that will be, that will spread in your body and, and, and wreak havoc. So that started when I was 12 years old. I'm now almost 40. In adulthood, I got treated to get in college for Lyme disease. My immune system was breaking down. I was having neurological effects of it. Um, I got treated again for Lyme in college. And then in my late 20s, the bottom sort of dropped out physically again. And when I say that, I'm talking about, uh, you know, crippling bone pain, that you would associate with arthritis, uh, digestive issues. I've, I'm now diagnosed with celiac, but when I was younger, I was just taken off anything that was inflammatory. So dairy products, uh, what we now call gluten, which back then we would just say wheat, rye, oats, you know, things like that, um, sugar, all of the nightshade vegetables, all those kind of things. Uh, I developed migraines. I have these massive migraines. So all of these sort of started building. And then I eventually got diagnosed with what we now call myalgic encephalomyelitis, which is chronic fatigue syndrome in its sort of old iteration, which honestly, I did not take seriously when I first got diagnosed with it, which now we better understand as a very serious, incurable post-viral illness that gets triggered. Some people get triggered by malaria, the flu, um, by things like the Epstein-Barr virus that comes with Lyme disease, um, by mono. It is a huge population of people in the United States, uh, which now includes, sadly, 
people who have long COVID, which I think is 3.2 million people in the United States in this last year have been diagnosed with long COVID, which is a post-viral illness that they are now considering pretty much on par with myalgic encephalomyelitis. Uh, same, same web of symptoms, same web of debilitating breathing issues. I have now two different uh, things that I mentioned in the article, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is a, a orthostatic condition where the, where the heart doesn't regulate blood pressure and heart rate. Uh, I have what's called preload failure. Um, on top of the celiac, I have fibromyalgia, which is a nerve condition. I have chronic migraine, which is triggered by horrible light and sound sensitivity. So it's, it's a web of things uh, under the umbrella of this neuromuscular immune illness. Uh, which, when it comes to restaurants, is very complicated because just getting to a restaurant can hurt. Um, I now use a cane. I have trouble standing for a very long period of time. So if I'm not seated, I can get all fainty. I'm sorry to interrupt, but also how you are seated, right? You mentioned in the article a story of sitting at a high boy. Yeah, yeah, sitting at a bar. And that was by choice. Yeah, no, that was by choice. My favorite place to sit is at the bar. I love eating at a bar and I love eating at a chef's counter. I've been doing that forever. And that was actually one of the reasons before I was diagnosed with this heart condition, this heart, this orthostatic aspect of my illness, I would sit at a bar and I'd be eating and drinking and not realizing that because my legs are dangling below me, if you're sitting at a bar, you might as well be standing up, you know, you're high off the ground and I'm a short person. I'm five, two, you know, so my legs dangling down, the blood is going down to my, it's, it's having a hard time getting up to my head as it's draining into my feet my blood pressure is going up and my heart rate is dropping and I'm getting dizzy and dizzy and I'm, you know, there with my partner trying to pretend that I'm feeling fine and, you know, taking a sip of water and like eating some salt without taking like, you know, tequila shot. I'm just trying to like regulate it. And eventually I have to run to the bathroom to squat down low to like deep breathe so I don't pass out. You know, that's not, that wasn't the restaurant's problem. Like I chose that. I was trying. I love that. But that's one of the things that for me and not, and for many people with, you know, this orthostatic intolerance, like sitting at a high seat is an accessibility issue for people in wheelchairs. You know, a lot of bars don't have, they can't be at a bar because the counter, there's no part of the counter that's low enough for them. Um, you know, so that's just example of two different people, you know, with disability issues who, with accessibility issues, I should say, that can't, you know, enjoy a bar that way. If you only have high, high tops and a bar counter, then who in a wheelchair is going to enjoy being in that bar space. Just to complete what you laid out at the beginning of this conversation, you talk about what happened during the pandemic, which was, you know, we don't, everyone's already moved away from this language, but it was the pivot, right? It was people were pivoting. Nobody could have people in their restaurants. Restaurants pivoted to a takeaway model or a curbside pickup model or or a delivery model in some cases, or they started working with companies like Gold Belly to deliver their experience in an at-home package, whatever that was. And this was the point that I found so interesting in your article. When the whole world had a limitation placed on it, restaurants out of necessity and also I think in a lot of ways for their own, I've heard a lot of chefs and restaurateurs and cooks say this for their own mental well-being, you know, to keep feeling useful and productive, they wanted to be doing this, created different models uh, for their businesses where people could in some fashion 
experience what they had to offer at home. And now as the pandemic recedes or becomes more manageable or however each of us might describe, you know, where we are right now, some of that is starting to go away as people refocus on dining at the establishment. Am I am I summarizing this accurately? Oh yeah, perfectly. Yeah, and it seemed to me like what you were saying is Hey, restaurateurs, hey, industry, you found a way to offer this at home. There's a whole population of us out here for whom that was, that was, I mean, obviously the reasons for it were horrible, but that was great. And please don't stop doing that. And maybe please keep evolving ways to offer that. That to me, when you talk about the intersection of, of this subject and the, and the pandemic, you know, that to me was very compelling. I hadn't really thought of it in those terms. And I have to say also, and I wonder what your response to this is, but I was very surprised to see that people have started to pull back on some of those uh, other options because all we've heard about for the last year, one of the things we've heard a lot about is how tight the margins are in restaurants. And it seemed to me that once, you know, a lot of restaurants that had not had a takeaway or or a delivery or a shipping option before, that once they figured out how to do that and developed systems for doing that, I didn't think they would ever let go of it because to me it seemed like, oh, well, here's another revenue stream. And reading your article, it was surprising to me that people are starting to pull back on that offering because I thought for sure that was something that was going to be here to stay across the board. There was still one thing I didn't touch on in the article is that there is one thing to be said about just offering these beautiful experiences to people at home who are also doing the extra work to get them. Then secondarily, they were the people who really upped their game with the communication aspect of what they were doing to a point that it could be that it would be self-sustaining. So the, the people who got their menus on the delivery platforms or on their own website, but in a way that things were so beautiful and so detailed that they didn't need to be putting things also on their social media or you know having people call them for details or DMing them on social media, that the things that take the extra time that they had to do because their actual dining rooms are shut they won't have time to do when the when the dining rooms are open. I think I think a lot of the part that is still missing for those people is okay, like accessibility for people at home is is so digitally reliant on making sure the information is there so people don't have to work hard to get it at home. And that goes for the operator side as well. You know, make sure that people that you have a way to get the information out there that is not so laborious on your side. There's just so many instances where people were coming up with these beautiful creative menus, but if you're coming up with a menu that you're serving like three, four days a week, and then you're doing all these new types of photos and it's a different type of menu, and then you're making the menu to share on your on your Instagram and your website in a certain way, but then people have to email you to get it or call you, it's just so much more work than having a, a repeatable, sustainable process you know, that you can keep going while your dining room also opens as well. Um, and, then there, and then there's the practical things like how much can your kitchen hold? You know, like what can you actually accomplish if you are trying to do double the diners with the same kitchen staff? You know, like there's those those practical things as well. So the success rates vary. And, you know, I, I have a bunch of ideas of where people could get better at accessibility for at-home diners. It's more of a question if people want to. Like when when things are truly safe and over... Is creativity and community and compassion and collaboration, do, do those things only exist when we're in crisis mode? Or can they exist 
in the industry in general more, you know, like, can we look to those things as, as things that we want in this industry more? When you say you have ideas, I mean, I don't, if you don't want to share them right now, it's fine, but I'm just wondering, is there one or two sort of overriding things or, or, or most universal notions you have that you want to put out there? Are there sort of global measures that you feel would apply across a spectrum of different types of restaurants at different price points that people should maybe consider? Yeah, and definitely, and I will speak just for people for about access for people with disabilities and illness, because honestly, healthy, able-bodied people have enough choices. That's what I mean by the question. For in-house dining, to get more disabled people to be able to go to your restaurants, and Yannick Benjamin, I, I, I spoke to and in, in quote in the story, he ha- is a person with paraplegia. He's a restaurant owner, now a partner in Contento, which is opening up in East Harlem. Uh, he's the wine director there. And so he his restaurant is set up with big accessibility things that nobody does. So he's got QR-coded menus for people in the blind in the blind and low vision community. He's got uh, his menu, he's got menus in Braille accessible. They are the menu in general is very friendly for different allergies. I believe those are marked. Uh, not only is the space wheelchair accessible, but as far as what I've mentioned with height before, there are various heights for things to to you know to make it available for people with varying disabilities in that way. And then he's really zeroed in on training his staff just to be comfortable in speaking about disability and access, because that obviously in hospitality and in restaurants and dining rooms, the front of house, we know what an awesome server is when it comes to communication and making people feel comfortable and welcome. And we know that fear of even just talking or asking a question is a way to make somebody feel uncomfortable or feel singled out. So training people. So hiring somebody to come in and just do work with your staff on accessibility and language, that's even just a huge thing. But then as far as the digital side or the the operating side, like reservation systems, when I don't know how many times I've put a reservation in online and specified when they have notes, specified, I have celiac. So you know, just so you know, like I'm, I always make a joke about it too. You know, it's, I always make a funny joke about it some way, or I think it's a funny joke, but I try to make a funny joke about the, how, about how I eat everything I can and I'm friendly about it. And I don't want to make a mess for the, for the kitchen, but I have celiac and it's a serious thing. It's not, it's not an, I don't eat gluten. It's, I have celiac. And I don't remember ever showing up to a table and the server saying, oh, so somebody here has celiac. Other than when I've been in like the, the the fine dining world of like the Daniel Balud or you know Eleven Madison, those guys they 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 know what's up. They're they're together. Um, if I go from one of the restaurants to another, they're ready for me. But other than that, even in really beautiful dining situations, if I put I, I have a celiac on the note, it's unknown when I get to the table. If I ask for a quiet table or a tape or a, you know, not a high top or something that is, it's like, I'd never put in a note. So if you're going to have something like that for a reservation where you're going to honor somebody saying, can I have, it's my husband's birthday. Can I have a cake come out without doing that? You know, without telling you when I get there, if you can pay attention to that note, pay attention when people put in things about their diet or assume that if they say, can I have a quiet table or can I have this type of table or I need this type of table because I have this, they mean it. And then finally, it's communication in general on your website or however you have information out there. I'm now starting to see accessibility on websites 
for the technical side where restaurants will say like, we want this website to be accessible because there's more companies now out there that are now like the watchdogs for accessibility on websites um, to make sure that they are compliant uh, legally. But there's rarely information about accessibility of the restaurant on websites. So don't make people who are, you know, who who have especially the the clearer disabilities, if they are in a wheelchair, if they are blind, if they are of the deaf or hard of hearing community or the low vision community, if they have celiac or a serious nut allergy, if, if your space is accessible to them, put it on your website. And then also make sure that it is. Like a lot of people in wheelchairs, this is very common, will report that, oh, I went to this place, they said they were wheelchair accessible, except to get to it, I had to go into the back alley and use the service elevator and then go through the basement and I had to disrupt everybody or I had to do something, you know, go somewhere gross. They feel very othered. So if you have, if your front door is accessible, you know, let people know that if your menu has a lot of things that are safe for people with nut allergies or celiac, mark the menu online. You know, it's just put as much thought into welcoming, like being hospitable to this population of people as you do to telling the story of your restaurant and, the, you know, the five paragraphs of your, your chef's 30 year history, you know, like put five words in about accessibility. Yeah. All points well taken. And I, I think one of the things that you are illustrating is, you know, there are uh, disabilities that people have illnesses, people have the things that are most obvious to the restaurants, right. Or the things maybe that, um, you know, someone's in a wheelchair, that's a clear, need, right? That's very that's very clear. Somebody's blind. That's very clear. But I think the point that I one of the big things I take away from what you're describing is that there are so many people out there who are dealing with illnesses and disabilities that maybe aren't quite so apparent um that that aren't immediately visible uh to others. Um that doesn't mean they don't require a certain amount of accommodation and you again what was so striking to me is that you put this all under the umbrella and I I think this is right uh of hospitality you know that this is part of being a welcoming establishment um you know as I hear you speak and and you know I'm sure there are consultants out there who can help people um uh be better about all this I you know I also know Budgets are tight right now. I would imagine, and I would just love to get your honest response to this. You know, I know a lot of restaurants during COVID that appointed, um, you know, like a COVID um, uh, monitor in-house, right? Somebody who they have their job and then uh, they also now have the job of kind of making sure the restaurant is complying with what the latest advice and and guidelines are, um, you know, for being safe, right? In the dining room and in the kitchen. I could imagine a good middle step for some restaurants. Anyone even who's hearing this interview who wants to be do better on this front might be to have an employee who you know, is particularly sensitive, who's partic- who's, who picks things up quickly, who could do some, some research and who could maybe institute some, some measures in, in your restaurant to make the place more accessible uh, to, to a wider range of people. Am I, is that an overly simplistic notion? I'm going to just take it one step further. There is a, a, a phrase that was established in the, the disability activism community back in the 70s that's now sort of been co-opted, uh, co-opted by activists in general. That is nothing about us without us. I know that, yes, budgets are extremely tight. And this is where 
when I pitched this article to Grub Street, I said it very clearly as someone who understands the constraints of the hospitality industry, especially in New York City. I have extreme sympathy for people trying to keep their restaurants going, especially right now. But in general, I love chefs. They are there's a lot of there are a lot of similarities between the grit and perseverance and compassion of some of my favorite chefs and some of my favorite disabled people. Like we've got a lot working against us in our different worlds. That being said, there are disabled people who it's, it's not about just having someone with like one disability or who has an insight or who has a sibling or a mother who's disabled who can provide insight. There are disabled people doing this work that can advise that that should be hired. And so nothing about us without us, you want to make your restaurant more accessible hire a disabled person to to help you with that whether it's a a quick consultation like what i am doing right now on this on, in this episode like there are people that could just give you a consultation on your restaurant and just sort of give you some touch points for specifically what is important and how to and where to start um and one thing that i'm pointing out one thing that I, I want to point out that as i continue this little area of work is that you cannot please everyone with a disability because a lot of our disabilities clash too. Um, and I think a lot of dis dis disabled people understand that. Like I have a survey going on my website for disabled people about their experiences in restaurants and what makes restaurants dis uh, inaccessible for them. Because with all of our different accessibility needs, like some of them are, are not the same. Somebody needs a high top, somebody needs a low top, you know, so you can't have a, you can't say, oh, well, restaurants all, you know, can't have high tops, can't have stools, can't have bars, you know, because some people need them. Uh, there's, there's so many different things. But if you want to make your restaurant more accessible in general, there are people out there already who are doing this work to make public spaces, social spaces more accessible. Talk to them, hire them listen to them, and then do the best you can with what they say. I would make a special mention for anybody who is pondering or in the planning stages of a new restaurant. This is a great time. Uh, you know, people who built their restaurants during COVID, a lot of them worked with their designers to build in um, uh, adaptations, I guess would maybe be the right word for a pandemic age and, and, and the, you know, and the chance that maybe we're going to be living with this uh you know, with this virus longer than any of us want to, you know, uh, you can also look into as if you're building a new restaurant, maybe incorporating some of these, um, uh, you know, some ways to make it as universally accessible that maybe you didn't think of when you first dreamed up the restaurant, but that, you know, maybe won't change things all that much. Again, I think it was a good piece. I will link to it uh, on all the various places where people listen. So if you look at the description for the show, you can go read the article uh, from Grub Street. And I really appreciate you coming on the show uh, and expanding on all this. And I, I do think it's important. And I hope this was, I'm going to say inspirational for anyone out there who's listening, who does own, operate, or chef at a restaurant and wants to try to make it more universally accessible. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. My pleasure. And and thank you all out there for, for cooking and for doing what you're doing. And good luck because it was a hard year for everybody. Nobody's ever asked me that question. It's a good one. I feel really seen. <laughs> it's great talking to you because you don't ask me what my favorite kitchen tool is or what my favorite <laughs> ingredient is to work with. You're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs, an independent podcast. We'll be right back. This was very enjoyable. Thank yeah, you. that was a pleasure. We'll see you again. God, I hope so.
welcome back to the show. My thanks again to Jacqueline Raposo for joining us for the lineup segment this week. Once again, I do want to ask if you have checked out Mies yet. Mies, as you probably know by now, is a relatively new sponsor of Andrew Talks to Chefs. It is also a revolutionary new interactive database designed and developed by a chef for professional chefs and cooks. And I promise you, it is a first-of-its-kind tool that is invaluable for anyone who works with recipes. It helps you scale, cost, adjust, record, and teach recipes across a single restaurant or an entire company. To learn more and sign up for a free trial, please visit GetMeez, that's G-E-T-M-E-E-Z, dot com slash Andrew. This is an Andrew Talks to Chefs classic moment. That was our time machine. That was our way of introducing you to a new segment. We are now going to be doing this every week. We're going to be sharing an Andrew Talks to Chefs classic moment. Why are we doing this? Well, for one thing, over the roughly three and a half years that we've been on the air, we have amassed a catalog of about 300 guests across approximately 200 shows. It's a multi-generational international assemblage of chefs and other industry figures who have joined us to talk and to share their thoughts. It's something I want to encourage everyone out there to peruse, whether for your own edification or education, if you're in the industry or for your own enjoyment, if you're a civilian listener. If you go to andrewtalkstochefs.com, in the upper right-hand part of the page, there is now a magnifying glass icon that, of course, is a search window that wasn't always there. Believe it or not, we somehow overlooked that when we first built the site, but there is now a search window, and you can search for anybody you might be interested in by name. On the pull-down menu that runs across the top of our homepage, there is now a tab that simply says guests. And if you click on that tab, you will find yourself presented with a page of nothing but alphabetically listed names of guests. They're arranged in three columns, alphabetical by last name. And you can look for anyone who might strike your fancy, whether it's someone you're particularly interested in, someone you've heard about but never heard interviewed, or whether it's just someone you never really thought about, but when you see their name there, you think, oh, I should probably know a little bit more about that person. I hope you will go and check that out. Normally, what we're going to do is present a snippet of an interview with someone who's currently in the news to put a little perspective on that. What I'm going to do this week is simply share a snippet from the very first interview we ever did on this show, episode one, from all the way back in late summer of 2017. I didn't know where the show was going at the time. I didn't know what to expect. I only knew that I wanted to do a one-on-one deep dive biographical interview show. I was lucky to book Alex Stupak of the Empeon restaurants in New York City as my guest. I went over to the offices of his PR firm, Mona Creative. We borrowed a conference room. I had just learned how to use my recording equipment maybe two days earlier. I was very nervous that I was going to not even be able to handle the tech part of the interview. Uh, Alex and I sat down. I think we'd only met even once before. We were supposed to go for an hour. We went for about 90 minutes. We had a true intellectual and emotional heart-to-heart. It really helped, to my mind, set the tone for everything that followed on Andrew Talks to Chefs. That's something I've shared with Alex personally and I've posted about publicly on social media. 
Alex, of course, before he did the Empeon restaurants, which offer his take on Mexican food here in New York City, was a revered pastry chef, first at Alinea Restaurant in Chicago, Illinois, and then at WD-50 here in New York City. He is super talented, and here is a snippet of our conversation where he shared a little bit of his process about how he went about determining flavor combinations in some of the desserts that first put him on the map. Check it out. People liked the desserts, but when results can be always be hit or miss, when the point of it in your head is, well, I have to make a crazy flavor combination. Sometimes a crazy flavor combination works, sometimes it doesn't. Um, later, I kind of learned that no flavor combination is crazy. It's just it, like it's either founded in. Um, a working principle or it's not. Mm -hmm. Now this sounds exciting. Like this became exciting to me because you can obscure the reference point and you can remove something once or twice yep. from the reference point where it's completely unrecognizable, but then people love it. Yeah. But they don't realize your reference. Like, so like, like, I mean, I could break it down. Like the idea of like take peanut butter and jelly. Like, okay. So Forget nostalgia, forget what you grew up. Now just start clinically looking at the nature of the flavor of the jelly and the nature of the flavor of the peanut butter. Mm -hmm. And go, okay, well, this is nutty and salty and this is sweet and acidic. Now start writing things underneath those two columns. So that's how you can arrive at a flavor combination like passion fruit and tahini or black currant or bl and black sesame. And I would do things like that all day long at places like WD-50 and Alinea, but that's you would just I, be sitting around making lists like this. Yes, um, and we would make those desserts and we would serve them. And people are like, man, I've never had a flavor combination like that, and it's so delicious. And it's like, but behind the scenes, it's like, well, black currant is the jelly, and black sesame is the peanut butter. And yep. and when I say twice removed, it's like you you've erased the literal the the flavor, but then you can remove it again by changing the texture or the form. Mm -hmm. So maybe that thing that was normally peanut butter is now frozen, or maybe it's aerated, or maybe it's right. A crumbled or like you start minute. So I love, I fell in love with pastry in that way because you're so free to manipulate ingredients at a way that is more or less unacceptable with savory food. Again, that was Alex Stupak from episode one of Andrew Talks to Chefs. You can peruse that episode and all the episodes you want. AndrewTalksToChefs.com is our website. And again, you can search for people you're interested in in the search window on the upper right-hand corner of the page, or you can look at an archive listing alphabetically organized by last name. If you hit the pull-down menu, simply titled Guest from the tabs that run across the top of our homepage. So as we've been doing every week in this space, we are gonna have Brad Metzger, who is the founder of Brad Metzger Restaurant Solutions, share a couple of the key jobs that his firm is currently looking to fill. Brad himself is joining us today, but BMRS is a seven-person firm with specialists working full-time to match the best candidates with the best jobs. Be sure to bookmark their website, restaurant-solutions.com, where most of their current job opportunities are listed and frequently updated. And you should also follow their Instagram feed. The handle for that is at BMRS Food Jobs, where they often post to highlight some key listings. And with that, let me get you to it. Here's my weekly chat highlighting some cool jobs that the firm is looking to fill with BMRS founder, Brad Metzger. 
So, Brad, before we jump in on our usual conversation, how was your Memorial Day weekend? I saw you were doing some musical stuff. Yeah, doing some live music up in uh, San Francisco, Santa Cruz area. Very nice. Was this uh, in the in your reggae wheelhouse? Reggae, you got it. The best. The best of the best. <laughs> I don't know. If people probably don't know this unless they follow your personal Instagram, but you are a reggae, can we say fanatic? You can say reporter. I actually have covered reggae music for some of the biggest reggae magazines in the world, including Reggaeville and Reggae Report International. And I actually even used to do some work with Billboard magazine. So it's a it's a nice distracting hobby from my full time job of recruiting. I love it. I love it. This is what my tennis writing career used to be. Brad, I want to talk about this week. And we've said this. You guys don't strictly look to fill kitchen jobs. You also look to fill the full spectrum of jobs that have to do with hospitality. That includes front of the house and managerial positions. You're going to tell us about a few of those today. But you also, if I'm not mistaken, have a background. You know, we do this little kind of superhero type summary of your life at the top of the show when we mention this segment every week. And we mentioned that you worked for the original Spago back in the day. But you also yourself have some front of house and managerial experience. Yeah, most of my my restaurant experience is actually in the front of the house. Uh, a lot of serving roles, management roles. I worked for San Francisco Hilton in food and beverage management. Grill on the Alley was my last job in operations. Ruth Chris Steakhouse. I worked for Ben Ford in Beverly Hills at Chadwick and a lot of, you know, restaurants in the front of the house capacity. So that all informs what you and your team do, of course, as does your own kitchen experience. Uh, but why don't you tell us, what are some positions out there, and I say out there in the broadest sense, around the country, around the world, that you guys are currently looking for great candidates for? We have really all levels of management positions, from restaurant manager positions, you know, those are generally in the $60,000, $70,000 range, all the way to VP of operations. We do have a really exciting VP of ops role for probably one of the most successful restaurant groups on the West Coast. And they have nine separate concepts, including a one-star Michelin restaurant, including a chef that's been a food and wine magazine, Best New Chef. And that's a VP of ops overseeing the whole operations. And that person would be based, when you say California, they would be based themselves in Northern or Southern? LA area. We have another uh, general manager position for a one-star Michelin restaurant in Beverly Hills. We have a really interesting, fun service consultant role for extremely high-end exclusive property in Turks and Caicos. This would be like a three-month temporary service and concept development role at this awesome property. Uh, we have a lot of interest in that right now. Wait, can I just ask, when you say a three-month, what exactly are we talking about? I mean, not that you don't have to name it, but what exact, what's the scope of the job? The scope is to help them relaunch one of their restaurants and just kick the service up a notch and help them tweak the final concept uh, of what they're doing to re basically reconcept one of their outlets. So this is a short-term consulting job, essentially. Correct. Is this sort of a, a an ASAP situation, like someone could look to conceivably spend their summer down there? Yeah, yeah. And they would put them up in the property. And yeah, it's a great, exciting role for someone who has you know very high-end service experience and is able to basically, you know, relocate themselves for three months at a beautiful wow. property. Fantastic. Can I go for that one? No, no, no. Send me your resume, Andrew. <laughs> 
What else you got? We have an LA market director position for a very exciting and growing food tech delivery platform. So like I said, a lot of people, you know, have the impression that we're all about like chef positions, exec chef positions, but we're, we're constantly working on these, you know, interesting out of the box management roles that are out of daily operations. And this one would basically oversee Southern California operation of a growing food tech delivery platform. We also have a food and beverage director position for a triple A five diamond Forbes five star uh, rated resort here in the LA area. We have a, a big catering sales manager position or a director. It could be a manager or a director title. Total package one hundred fifty thousand. That's here here in the LA area. It's great. And as always, we will provide all the contact information right after this segment and on the episode page for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com, as well as on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and any other platform you might be listening on where links are functional. Brad, as always, thanks for your support and thanks for coming on and hipping people to all these great opportunities you guys represent. Thank you, Andrew. And I just loved your chat with David Burke. That, that really eased my, my long drive down from Northern California this weekend. And I, it's so nice having, having that. I really appreciate it, Brad. Thank you so much. Okay. Thank you, Andrew. Bye. Thanks again for joining us, Brad. Thanks again to BMRS for their support of Andrew Talks to Chefs. Again, please bookmark and keep an eye on the BMRS website, restaurant-solutions.com to stay abreast of up-to-the-minute job listings and whether to pursue a specific job or just to establish an ongoing dialogue for when your dream job crosses their desk. Brad and the BMRS team would love to hear from you and learn about what you are looking for. Please be in touch with them at their dedicated Andrew Talks to Chefs email address. That is ATC at restaurant-solutions.com or call them at 310-245-5108. Again, they do observe the strictest confidentiality standards. They will not mention your name to any prospective employers without clearing those specific contacts with you first. And I also want to remind you, if you're not in the hunt for a job yourself, if you're not interested in seeking out the possibilities that are out there, but if anything you just heard sounds like it might be intriguing to a friend of yours, please point them to it and they're welcome to use that email address also. Again, it's ATC at restaurant-solutions.com. However you reach out and whomever you speak to at BMRS, be sure to tell them Andrew sent you. So our featured guest this week is Peter Hoffman. A lot of you out there probably know that name. Peter was the chef and owner for almost 30 years of Savoy Restaurant, which was a beloved restaurant in New York City's Soho neighborhood. Savoy was a restaurant that long before people used the term farm to table helped pioneer that practice. Peter was one of the very early dedicated chef proponents of the Union Square Green Market in New York City. He was very well known for making trips there on a bicycle of his that was kind of outfitted to his specs to make it easy for him to cart great amounts of produce back to his restaurant. He is someone who worked in a number of important restaurants that preceded Savoy here in New York City. And he has a new memoir out. The book is called What's Good? It publishes on June 8th. That's next week. It is currently available for pre-order. And I have to tell you, when usually when I read a book written by a chef, I, you know, sometimes I expect it to be okay, uh, pretty good, really good. 
I was not prepared for how terrific Peter's memoir is, especially since he didn't work with a collaborator. He wrote it himself. He spent quite a bit of time on it. His thoughtfulness shows through on every page. His intelligence shows through the entire book. But more than all that, the guy's like a secret writer who was kind of waiting to be born in his post-chef period of his life. And you'll see in the interview, we talk about this now, but I would say, and he would say, he's now a writer. He's kind of made this amazing metamorphosis. I don't really feel like I need to say a whole lot about the book because we get into it in incredible detail in this conversation. I met with Peter in the backyard of his Greenwich Village apartment uh, just last week. It was a beautiful day. You can hear some of the sounds that you hear if you're sitting in someone's backyard in Greenwich Village, New York. I find all of it very soothing and, and wonderful after you know, 15 months of lockdown. It's still a novelty to me to be with people in person doing these interviews face-to-face and having all that great energy flowing around us. Uh, and I think I'm going to get you right to it. Our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sampellegrino.com. And with that, let's get to my conversation with Peter Hoffman. Here you go. Peter, it's great to be here with you. Thank you for having me to your home. It's nice to be here with you, Andrew. I hope it wasn't presumptuous. I suggested it. No, I think it's a nice place for me to be comfortable and yeah. both of us to be comfortable talking yeah. about the book. I don't know if you remember. You had me here once before. I do remember. Uh, I think we were maybe... I don't know what we were doing. I think we were just catching up. Spent a, a nice afternoon. A pandemic later. <laughs> it's nice right. to be back in some semblance of normalcy. We were talking before I started recording. I, I absolutely love your book. I'm a bit dazed by the book. I just wasn't expecting such as, like, I don't know what. I don't want to sound insulting. You're, I mean, this isn't your main vocation. Your main vocation was being a chef and a restaurateur. Very true. So I wasn't expecting something this writerly. I guess my first question for you is... Did you surprise yourself in the production of this book that you could, and I'm not asking you to compliment yourself, yeah. but are you surprised by how, how deep and rich a text you managed to produce? Well, thank you for those compliments. I do think it is a very rich and deep text. And I spent a lot of time contemplating what I was writing and how to send it somewhere, that it wasn't just recounting my tales. That it wasn't just a chronology. No, no it wasn't just a chronology. That's, yeah. I don't want to say that's easy to do, but that isn't what the book is. I had a list of topics that I wanted to cover. Some of them were ingredients, some of them were moments in the, my life as a cook or life in the restaurant. And from a very skeletal set of sentences about what those chapters would be, I then sat down at the computer and began to riff. There was no outline. There were sentences of what the topic was, but there was no outline. And so it was very much like my style of improvisational cooking. That is, I have a palette of ingredients that I'm going to work with. I don't necessarily know where I'm going to end up, but I have the skills, whether those are the culinary skills or the, the conceptual skills of how to follow a path. 
And so I would write, and during the pandemic, it was wonderful. I mean, there was nothing else to do but sit at my desk and think or write. And so that's what I did. I followed that path. And in time, I, I realized sort of what the end of the chapter was. What, was. what was the chapter really about? And then with that self-consciousness or with that consciousness of what the chapter was about, then I could go back and make it a more seamless or thoughtful process of, of what the writing was. So that was wonderful. I mean, I loved finding that. It was scary at times because you're in the middle of the forest and you don't know where you're going and whether you're going to get to the see the light of the meadow on the far end. And then I would have this moment where it was like, oh yeah, I'm going to, I am going to come out of the forest. I do see the light. I'm not there yet. But then there was hope and optimism. I can do this. And, and it's like cooking. There's a fear in, in cooking improvisationally that you, you may or may not make it out the other side with a great dish. And then you go like, oh yeah, this is coming together. This does make sense. Oh yeah, that ingredient, pull it in. Um, that's going to provide the zing. And, um, and, and here we are. And yeah, of course. And you go like, well, of course, that's the recipe. That, that makes total sense. But it didn't exist at, at the beginning of the process. I'm struck, or I was struck a minute ago in that answer when you compared it to your cooking process, right? Because you, and it was so interesting to me to read, I mean, I've, I've, I ate at Savoy. I, I, I knew what you were about before, long before you and I ever, way before you and I ever met, probably before I was even around the food business. You do ruminate on this, you know, you do meditate on this quite a bit on and off throughout the book. There is, I think, to do the kind of cooking that you do and that you did in your restaurants. You might want to correct me on the word, but I, I, there seems to me to be a real interesting combination or intersection of fatalism, like this is what the day hands you, right? Or this is what this moment the in time, season hands the season you. or the uh -huh. micro season hands you. You know, you were very committed to that being one of the parameters of what you were doing on a given day. But also a romance, right? To me, I don't like that. That I think you were also very much in love with that that part of it that's what it strikes me as uh as opposed like you just were using words like a fear and is it going to work out but to me that there's a romance to cooking like that but please correct me yeah, no i th certainly i mean i set i set certain parameters for myself i wasn't trying to be an italian restaurant um or a classic french restaurant the game if you will that i set out for myself was bringing sort of working with Regional European cuisine, Mediterranean cuisine, whatever, however you want to sort of talk about the, those terms, with being seasonal. That was, that was what I was trying to work with as my parameters. There were, there were times in the beginning of the restaurant where I had, you know, I was doing lemongrass broth with tempura fried soft shell crabs. And I was like, that, that doesn't, it's delicious, but that doesn't hang with the rest of what I'm doing here. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be global cooking. That wasn't, that, that didn't feel honest to me for who I was as even though I could say, well, I, I like cooking that and I like cooking that. And, but in time, what I focused on was sort of that balance between working from a place of real seasonality with 
a, a style of cooking that comes out of the Mediterranean. Did that approach, when you can make that comparison, did that give you a confidence that, like you, again, going back to what you just said a minute ago, at some point you said you could see the light at the end of the tunnel, but were you ever, did you ever doubt that that light would appear? I mean, did, As a writer? Yeah. I'm oh, wondering yeah. if like when you compare it to cooking, <laughs> like I would think cooking the way you did would give you a certain reassurance that eventually it's all going to work out because it so often did for you, living on the edge like that. Yeah, but, but that I didn't always have that in my writing process. I mean, I would spend days there going like, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't, you know, but you keep at it and you keep at what's hard and you know that there are, I knew that there were things that I was really committed to, but I, you know, and then there are discoveries along the way that, that then you go, ah, I get it. I get it. And this is exciting. And so then I built confidence as a writer I had a writing group that I got together with on a monthly basis where I read material that was um, critical to um, my process. I also had other readers, acknowledged of course, but my friend Catherine Alford, who um, I cooked with, we cooked with, Susan and I cooked with at Hubert's. 40 plus years ago and Adam Gopnik who wrote the foreword to the book would read material and offer comments and um, so there were people who were helping me continue to refine the work that I was doing supporting my exploration of my voice and my journey in sharing my passions about cooking. How did the structure of the book come about? I mean this is a compliment but I almost use that word Loosely, I mean, unless I don't see it. Oh, no, it's but there. How would you, because the book does move around in time. It does alternate between, or among, I should say. You know, you do have these, these essays or sections about ingredients, right? Mm -hmm. And then very often you tie those into what was going on at a certain moment in time. But then you also have essays that are about, a, you know, a moment in time or about a moment in the, your evolution, the evolution of Savoy or, you know, your, rela you know, your relationship with mm -hmm. your wife, I mean, mm -hmm. whatever it is. Yep. And these, you know, I, as I often say in interviews, sometimes there's a, a structure isn't immediately apparent to me, but I always think about what you, you took it back to cooking, right? I always think about a restaurant menu, you know, and I feel like there are times when you look at a menu and it all, it seems very eclectic, you know, but it all seems to belong together. Mm -hmm. And you maybe can't even put words to why, it just does. As a reader, and I haven't sat in, you know, I haven't done a scholarly reading of your book, it very much struck me that way. It was, you know, I couldn't explain why this progression of chapters held together, worked, made sense as I was going along. I didn't feel like, whoa, you know, like mm -hmm. I was dropped through a trap door. So I'd love, to, I'd yeah, love for well, you, I mean, very, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but for no, you say there... it's very clear. I think about it a couple of ways. One is, is that in the, in the big scheme, it's about the, the business and the passion of cooking. What does it take to, be, to, to run a business, to become a chef? What are, what, is, what are the technical parts of all of that? And then what is it that keeps us going? What, what fuels us and, and, and is about the art? And for me, that's about the ingredients. It starts from the ingredients. And so I wanted to tell those stories. So what's intertwined are um, the arc of my life, 
how I became a cook, what it was like to be a chef, what it, how I came to open the restaurant, what it was like running a restaurant, what got hard about it. That's the business arc. And then interwoven into it is a year of seasonal ingredients through my trips to the Union Square Green Market. Some of those chapters then get into personal stories or historical stories, but you can, you know, it's the, the book starts with leeks and potatoes. In the really hard winter, the dark days, there's nothing growing in the Northeast. Everything that we have access to is coming out of the storage bin, out of the root cellar. And telling those stories and progressing to the beginnings of spring with the running of sap in the maple tree and um, green food all the way through the season of of the great fruits that begin to um, come into the market that plants are are no longer we're no longer eating the vegetal part of the plants but actual the fruiting bodies whether that's eggplants and tomatoes or peaches and cherries to the very end when the light is getting lower again in the fall and temperatures are dropping and we're starting to go back to hardy plants. And the, one of the final chapters is about radicchio, kale, and chicories. So that's the, that's the arc of the book. So you're going through the whole growing season with me and over the course of that, you're learning some botany and historical backstories about the plants or the ingredients and intercut with that are the stories of my life in the restaurant. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. You do also, as you're going through this, you know, early in the book, you use this phrase, you, I, I, you start, you say you like to start your day with the universe or a tour of the universe, a tour of the universe, right? Which quickly gets us into, I mean, food is kind of your portal, right? That to a yeah, lot of this. It's my portal into the, into the outside world because I live here in the center of downtown Manhattan. It's mostly buildings. Everything that's growing here for the most part is planted, cultivated, and intentional. But I need to be uh, um, connected to the seasons, to the rotation of the earth, to what's growing out there. And so my grounding is by getting on the bike, going up to the farmer's market multiple times a week at Union Square, sometimes some other locations, and getting a sense of where we're at in the season. And from that, I get a sense of what I'm, I'm out in the environment as well. I'm in the weather. So what is it that I'm going to want to cook? What do I feel like today? And um, what is available today? And um, so that was really very important to me, just from a spiritual or personal grounding on a day-to-day -day basis. I have to ask, and maybe I, I don't think I missed it in my reading, or I don't think I'm forgetting it. And you do explain, I mean, you went out to, you went out to California for school. You had a shot, or, or someone suggested at some point you go to Chez Panisse. They did. They didn't name it, but you kind of like... I wait. didn't name it. Oh, she you, said you, it, but I didn't know well, the restaurant you, at that you, was like, yeah, ah, well, you Yeah, well, you, you kind of save it. It's like your little yeah. uh, surprise uppercut when you... I mean, we, if, if you know anything, when you're reading that little paragraph, you know the end of the paragraph yeah, of is going to be, and that was Chez yeah. Panisse. Yeah. But, you know, you, you, you didn't go there. I've interviewed you before i've had a meal or two with you um i've never found you to seem like a fish out of water in new york city but i have to say reading the book it surprises me that you live in new york city hmm. so much about you would seem to be on an animal level happier 
even just across the river where you grew up in New Jersey, you know, or in California, you know, that's a very stereo, that's the easy pick or in, somewhere in Colorado. It's funny to me. I just wonder if you could speak to this for a minute because, because of the things that are so important to you, those are things you have to work for in New York. That's right. It, they require effort. Right? They do. And they, in, they there do. are many other places where it doesn't. So I'm just wondering if you could speak to what is, what is it that kept you here? One thought that comes to mind for me, Andrew, is, is that you might remember at the, at the end of the book, in the apple chapter, I talk about all the different kinds of apples that some mascot orchard grows and asking the question of why do we need... why? I mean, he, the day that I was there at the 82nd Street Market to visit them. I mean, they're at Union Square, but I went up to visit the farmer himself who doesn't come to Union Square very much anymore. And there were 35 different apples that he was selling that day. And I asked the question of why, why do we possibly need 35 different apples? It's not like what happens in the grocery store where they have 35 different kinds of breakfast cereal, and we certainly don't need that. But the idea that all these different varieties are expressions of different kinds of personalities. And I sort of made the leap there to the different kinds of people that live in New York City and the different kinds of arts and creative lives that people are able to choose here. Those are both really exciting to me, that there are 35 different apples that I can eat on a Saturday um, on 82nd Street. But that I'm surrounded by people who are drawn to this city to create all different kinds of art in all their personal expressions. And you don't get that in lots of other places. Um, so I, that's kind of why I'm still stuck here. I love the verve of the city. When I think about all the different kinds of people that I've met as customers of the restaurant, that's part of it. It is an incredibly diverse and creative community of people. So I, I take energy from that as well. So my tour of the universe is both about the seasons and plants, but it's also about who am I around? What's my community? Yeah. Well, it's very interesting to me. I mean, you've mentioned Adam Gopnik, who wrote the foreword to the book, and he was a part of these uh, evenings that you did uh, mm-hmm. at the restaurant. Mm-hmm. I don't know that I would say it's one of the more eloquent lines in a book that's full of eloquent lines, but there is a line in the book where you talk about the, the word regulars mm-hmm. in restaurants. And you say that you've, ne- you've never liked that word because it reduces very personal, deep, meaningful interactions to something transactional. Mm-hmm. That's, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but yeah, that's, no, more, that's, that's almost exactly what it yeah. said. I read that line like four times uh-huh. because that is, I was never like, I wasn't a regular at Savoy. I, I ate there bunch of times i didn't know it on that level but i've known other restaurants where that's certainly the case and i've known other chefs and owners who have those kind of relationships and that was a very i'm actually finding myself a little moved as i talk about it right now maybe because we've been deprived of so much of that for the last year that was very interesting to me that seems to me to dovetail with the point you just made these weren't just customers right you know restaurants are fascinating places wherever they are, they're, they're this funny public or semi-public, semi-private gathering spot for community, for people. Whether it's 
your local watering hole and what happens at the bar or a pub. I mean, everybody knows what that kind of looks like. And in, in other countries, the pub itself, you know, Ireland or England, is the community center. Um, so restaurants are that. And they... There's, so there's a mingling of 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 minds of of information in the course of I'm here for dinner and or they're here for dinner and I'm here to cook it and provide it and uh, and all of that and as I said it's not transactional it is transactional but it's not solely transactional and it goes in both directions the number of times that I took away new information, a book reference, uh, an introduction to a person, all of that kind of mingling of, from conversation, from interaction with people made me a richer person, made the restaurant um, a more interesting restaurant, and that came from that community. It wasn't just me out there serving up grub. There's a couple of questions I have about this aspect of the book. Um, the density of detail kind of knocked me out. I'm wondering if you're just blessed with a great memory or what the process was of getting down so much information. And then I'm also, I mean, I really had a sense that you were, well, let me ask you that first. Okay. First of all, what's, your, how, what's the caliber of your memory and how much work was involved? <laughs> Did you have to go in and interview other people who were there? Did you have to do a Are lot Are you talking of, about Savoy historical things or I'm about... I'm talking about a lot of the detail about... Well, Savoy, but also just the, like the neighborhood and, and the street and what, you know, and, and, and walking around and what used to be where in terms of storefronts. There was a level of detail that, as a reader, really puts you there. And as someone... Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I don't know you probably don't know this. I used to live at 88 Bleecker Street. Oh. Corner of Bleecker and Broadway. I know the building. Yeah, Stone's Throw, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you were writing about that. I used to live in this neighborhood, right? right? And, mm -hmm. and I found my, I mean, it was very, to me, just like, it was very, just some of the incidentals, supposedly incidental stuff mm -hmm. to me was very powerful just in terms of you know, capturing a, a, a moment in time that's, right. you know, that's no, that's no longer. There are a couple things I want to say about that. First of all, is this, that I know that as a writer that the more detail that I could put in and um, enliven, make real those, the, the, what I was talking about, the better it was going to be. I probably do have a really good memory for certain things. I'm not good with dates. I need Susan to remind me of sort of the historical chronology because I'm not good with dates. However, I think there's two things that I think sometimes about my memory is just like a lot of a lot of what I'm talking about I was living in a really rich and aware sensitive kind of time so I was impressed I was personally I wasn't just floating through life it, 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 it was rich in the moment and so I've held on to some of that stuff mm -hmm. I also, the pandemic was great for that because there were days or hours where I could sit at my desk and actually close my eyes with full consciousness, full attention, and go back and try and rebuild and reclaim some of those 
times in those places because it's all there, right? So I was able to re-access a tremendous amount of material by being calm and going there and visiting the landscape in my mind and trusting that. I mean, it, it was it, it was really kind of interesting. Was it fun? Yeah. And, you know, I, I was kind of, it was amazing to me that I, that I really, you know, I sat there at my desk, my eyes were closed. You would think that I was spaced out or drifting away, but I wasn't. I was just with full attention, full consciousness, thinking, reviewing, mining, and, and doing the thinking, making the connections. And, and so it, I, I did access a lot of really rich material just by having the brain space and no distractions to access it. So the other question I have is, you know, you mention a lot of books in this book. Mm -hmm. A lot of books, mm -hmm. and not just cookbooks. You mention cookbooks, you mention books on food that aren't necessarily cookbooks, you mention philosophical tomes, right? Spiritual books. Oh, yeah, you mean about be here now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The uh -huh. present. Well, you just use the term, being in the present. That's, yeah. that's, you talk about your kind of coming to that moment in the book, right? Right, right. The feeling I had reading it was that you, not just for the sake of your own story and capturing that when putting that down, which can be a very profound and powerful thing to do, but I really had the feeling you were, you wanted someone who might pick up this book, I mean, certainly now, but for sure 20, 30, 40 years from now, to, to, to know what it was like to be in Soho, you know, at these various moments in time. I felt, to me, I don't know if that was, I mean, I guess I'm wondering if that was a part of your mission or if that's just a happy side effect. No. But to me, it's an incredible, as someone who has tried to read, you know, my own work here and there, and, and get a sense of what the, the texture of life was like in a given place at a given time. Um, to me, that's one of the gifts of this book, is I feel like someone could pick this up and know, like, you know, within a certain radius of where you and I are sitting right now, oh, this is what it was like, you know, in the, in the 90s. No, that wasn't an intent. The intent was to explore who I was, what I was thinking about, that me as a chef, me as a chef artist, was not just thinking about food all the time. Um, there were lots of influences and they shaped me and I tried to reflect that in the telling of the story. Can we talk about kitchen protocols and, and politics for a minute? Sure. You know, I did not realize this about you, Peter, but there were things you did at Savoy that were very much ahead of their time. Uh, they're very much uh, in sync with some of the, you know, what a lot of people are using the shorthand word, the reset you know, is about right now in terms of dealing with certain dysfunctions of the restaurant industry. You know, you talk about, for instance, for all intents and purposes, really a lack of a hierarchy that you didn't want to have people who were, you know, the kind of immigrant, largely immigrant or presumably would have been immigrant population of prep cooks who come in and do like the grunt work in the morning and then the you know the the people who exist on a higher level come in and and work the line during service right people mm -hmm. prepped their own stuff they and then they cooked it that Type, was how we started you didn't right how you started you didn't use titles uh initially you said you said basically you were a group of chefs you have you happen to be the one who signed the checks but there was that. You want, to just, you want to say something, clearly. Well, there are a couple things about that. Yeah. One is I wanted to be part of a troupe. 
that was the that was the goal. I was going to be the the ringleader, but we were all participants in that. Some people had less experience. I had more experience, and I had a vision. But I, um, but voices and input was welcome from multiple places. And as you said, I originally I didn't want to structure the restaurant in that hierarchical way in which immigrant employees, lower paid employees are doing all the prep and then the skilled white guy line cooks come on and rock it out. I wanted people to be invested in their own mise en place. It wasn't just, it, I mean, there were a lot of parts of it. It was political. That is, I didn't want to have a class system. Under your it, own roof. Under my own yeah. roof. I already, yeah. I have a lot of issues with that. We have a lot of issues with that. We have to figure that out. So that's how we started. There were no prep cooks. Everybody came in and did their own mise en place. They set up their station. There's something good about that because you did the work. You know what condition it's in. In time... It, you know, you're trying to you're trying to make money, and and chefs who came in, uh, good chefs who who worked in more financially successful restaurants than what Savoy was at the time, said like, Pete, you really need to streamline things, and one of the ways you do that is by having a guy that's just standing there all day long. He cuts all the chickens, he cuts all the fish. Yeah, you he tell pulls- the story of your first butcher. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And was his name Mari- Mariano? Mariano. Yeah. He wasn't the first. He was the best. <laughs> and um, but he he proved that doing that kind of specialization in the kitchen was more financially efficient. It wasn't necessarily good for the culture of the kitchen or for the learning skills and the development of the cooks coming through because they you know they didn't really have to butcher the chickens or learn how to fillet fish because he was a master well can i interject one thing sure this is an interesting comparison point right because you also detail your own as you have have had time throughout the years right while you're running a restaurant you detail your own kind of. Uh, this sounds like a, an overly, um, uh, an overly dramatic way to say it, but your own kind of ongoing quest for knowledge, right? And you talk about butchering. You mm-hmm. talk about going. I forget which one to a butcher shop uh, somewhere in the area. Florence Meat Market Florence on Meat Jones Market, Street. And and they would let you come and and hang, and you would just watch. Mm-hmm. The butchers and you pick. You talk about you picked up like how to do like a, a scallop of veal and mm-hmm. how to mm-hmm. uh, what's the term? De- I don't know the term. Deseam or what's the yeah to seam out seam out beef or whatever it mm-hmm. was. Right? You 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 talk about your own desire to learn those things. Right? So it's interesting that this anyway. It's interesting you're commenting on what that that specific position mm-hmm. denied certain other people on the team in terms of right learning possibilities so as i said that became the that was a later model of the of the restaurant because it was financially efficient it wasn't necessarily as i said it wasn't how i started out wanting to run the kitchen mariano was paid as if he he was he 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 earned the same level of wages as as sous chefs because he was that important and that skilled, even though he wasn't in a that kind of a management position of of, the, of other cooks. Of course, 
he was a manager of other coasts because he was watching what everybody was doing and telling them or telling someone else that they needed to tell the guy to do a better job. Um, right. right. You know. But here's my question. Yeah. At the time we're talking, right? I mean, this is, again, this is something that a lot of people are wrestling with right now, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. You were not part of a, as far as I know, uh, maybe you... Maybe you were, but that you weren't part of a movement at the time. This seems to me like it was a very self-generated, specific to you endeavor. Uh, I'm wondering, I'm wondering where that impulse came from. I mean, was it just an innate sense of what was right and what was wrong? Was it something you had observed in other kitchens that always made you feel kind of uncomfortable? Where did the desire to make a change on that front come from? Just what was the spark for that? At that time. Well, I, I wouldn't say it was innate, but um, I, clearly I was, I knew that I was uncomfortable with the politics or the, stru- the structural racism and classism of most of the restaurants that I had worked in up to that point in, in New York. And at that time, you would have deemed them with those words. You perceived it as a racist system at that time. That's totally, not something totally. that you perceive now looking back. No. No, I knew that was I knew that was wrong. I knew I was uncomfortable with that. I didn't I wasn't in any position to do anything about it. It, it was the same thing around tipping in the front of the house. And, and that, for for starters, maybe for the last 20 years it's been more commonplace in restaurants like Savoy that that tips were pooled within the house, but the standard prior to that and still in many places is you don't share your tips outside of your section. You're given your section. And you tip out the bartender 10 or 15% if there's a bartender because he made your drink and that, that whole thing. And, and again, there's, it's set up for harassment and abuse and, um, and, and classism of what section are you going to get. And, and that you're not helping out. It's not a team effort. So I was like, we're not doing that. We are not doing that. So pooling tips, again, just within the front of the house, I and mean, I'm not even getting into the, the inequity of the fact that 20 or percent, if, if, if the tip is in general, the average is 20% on the dollar, that, that 20% of the revenue coming into the house doesn't belong to the house. And so can't be thought of in terms of the, the equity and the distribution of of, of revenue based on everybody who's putting in the effort. I mean, that is totally whack, right? We, I mean, there's lots of talk about it and people have, are trying to bring about that change, but just think about that. 20% of the money that comes into the restaurant isn't mine to work with as owner to redistribute and, and think about. But in any case, just in the front of the house, deciding to say we're one team was already a, a step forward to to build cooperation and build community into the house and we worked hard i mean again it, it's it is hard there's diff- a different life and a different pay structure for the people in the front of the house than people in the back of the house but i was never you know i was never a, a chef who threw knives i was always i knew that the waiters were there to communicate what the customer wanted or needed or were thinking about it or had a valid perspective from what they saw. And I had to teach my cooks. I had to teach 
everyone to listen to others. That was a big part of what happened at, at Savoy. And there are many, many employees who will tell you that, that that's part of what happened there. It wasn't, it didn't come naturally to everybody. And so it wasn't happening all the time. But what I held out as the expectation was that we're respectful and listening to everybody in the house. Mm -hmm. You just used the word troop a minute ago. T-R-O-U-P-E. Yes. Uh -huh. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Was it, what is, where does that reference for you come in? Like, do, what do you think of when you think of that? Do you think of like an acting, like a theatrical yeah. situation? Yeah, it's theatrical. It's a circus. You know, there's, when I'm talking in, in one of the early chapters about the, my real first restaurant job was in a hotel in Stowe, Vermont. And, of course, everybody who's working in the front of the house, they're ski bums and... Um, the back of the house were ski bums too, but um, I, I realized that it was so exciting to me to experience everybody needed everybody else, in, including a good dishwasher, and that's what I was. And people will say, you know, my dishwasher's been with me for 10, 15 years, and he's, he's the best, you know, and, and all those jobs matter in order to, to um, make the show go on. And I took great energy from that and loved that there were all those different people that it, it were necessary in order to make it run. And that gets forgotten a lot in the way that food stories or restaurant stories are told it over and over again. It's chef, 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 it's chef-centric, and occasionally there's acknowledgement of, of a sous-chef, of this one, of that one, but it, it always goes back to, I mean, it, it's, it's not about star chefs, right? It's about a community of people working together. Some of what, what happened at the restaurant was is that I was sometimes not as demanding that the food be plated exactly the way that I said that I that was my dream and scream at somebody for not plating it that way but rather giving them some broader range to plate or to taste um, and so there's more variation and and so maybe somebody didn't the plate didn't look as good coming out um, at, a, at a certain point and that detracted from somebody's dining experience. But in the process, there was also a, a, a culture of work that was, I hope, was a more supportive place to work than what some of the uh, more intense kitchens are where every plate comes out looking exactly the same. You just mentioned the dishwashing job. You know, so much about your legacy as a chef and restaurateur, so much of what's in this book to me is um, and I don't I don't mean this at all in a negative way, but there a lot of it is somewhat cerebral, intellectual. Um, no, your eyebrows yeah. went up. No, no, <laughs> no, no. But 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 so it's striking to me when you talked about in the book 
the feeling of having physically exerted yourself after a day in a kitchen and the satisfaction of that. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the last things in the book, I think it's in the acknowledgments actually, not in the actual text, is um, you know you make reference to both your parents and you, you, you say your father taught you the value of working hard. Mm-hmm. Um, can you just speak to this aspect of it for a minute? Because I don't, you know, there is so much about the prototypical kind of chef of the era that you were you know, doing your thing in that you are sort of a, like counter-programming to, right? Like, you know, we talked about this before I started recording, mm-hmm. um, the antics and all that. That was never really your thing. But this, this part of it is, this is part of what I think a lot of people, I don't think this gets talked about all that much. Certainly not as much as the creativity of being a chef. But you seem to really love the exertions of the, of the job. I love the, I, I love the physicality of it. I love, it's a very, it starts from very sensual places. Um, You know, putting your hands inside a fava bean pod and feeling that carpet is so soft. And and when, you know, back to the, the hierarchy, when a prep guy or gal is the person who does that, and so that line cooks never have to, peel their own fava beans or take them out of the pod never have that sensual experience and it's luxurious and not to be missed so there are lots of those experiences that are what I cherish about being a cook Um, and so there's the, the sensual aspect of it and then there's and the next part of the, the work is about developing the craft. And it's a very physical set of skills that we develop and, and we get them, they get embedded in our non-conscious mind. They, they, they get, they're, they're in our hands or they're, they're in the unconscious part of our brain. And so that um, habits that we have of how to slice or um, or how to tie the meat, which is something that I talk. There's a whole chapter about trussing a a, a roast. Um, those are the practice of that is really something I cherish as as cooks that we develop, and it's from the actual repetitions. The repetition of doing the same thing over and over again. The way that a figure skater. Ha- does figure eights and tries to get that figure eight without a widening, ever widening pattern. We do that every night on the line. And I have a lot in my arsenal now because of having put in those hours. And that, so I, I love that physical craft and the development of that as, as a cook. So it's cerebral, but uh, that, Having a desk job isn't enough for me. I, I needed something very physical to um, work through. And so that's what I loved about being a cook. I got some of that from my dad. He was a dentist. He was a craftsman, a very thoughtful, conscious about how he went about his, his work and developing and improving his practice. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't just punching out the... Um, 
the cavities. It's you know? so funny. You, I mean, that's a, it's. A, I don't know. I don't know if that comparison makes sense to a lot of people. But I remember years ago, I saw a dentist. I think he was on Ninth Street. He may still be there, for all I know. Um, and I was speaking to. A, I had then I had to go see a specialist for something, and I mentioned this dentist. And this other person said to me, "Oh, so and so is great. He does beautiful work." Mm-hmm. And I thought, what is interesting? What is to me at the time strange way to talk about a dentist? Right. Beautiful, yeah. work. beautiful work, right? But the and guy had many... done like an onlay for me, which is like half a crown. Mm-hmm. I had a tooth; they were trying to avoid a root canal on. Right, right. And I will say, you would never have known to look at it. I mean, that is a form of, it's for sure, craftsmanship at a minimum. Yep, total craftsmanship. I mean, I've had, so I've actually ha- gone to a dentist, and they didn't know anything about my past, and they grabbed another dentist in the practice and said, "Come here." I want you to see something. Look at that. Isn't that beautiful? And he was talking about some of my dad's work oh, wow. that I travel with. On your mouth. In my mouth Amazing. every day. Oh, my gosh. You know, that's, I almost that's, want to stop the interview right there, but yeah. I, can't, I can't. But that's so perfect. <laughs> it was. It was. It sort of, oh, that's, you know. That's, so a, that's, that's a, a beautiful thing, Peter. Yeah. Um, and as I said, you know, only a few people get to see it, right? right I get to right, travel right. with it, but um, it's out there. But and, it's there. And, and so... That's the model, right? That's yeah. what we can become as as cooks. This book has recipes in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, as you know, as someone who's collaborated with a number of people on their own on their memoirs, people who aren't blessed with your writing abilities, um, you know, very often publishers want to add recipes to a book. Um, I almost always don't want to do it. Um, I feel like they just want to add it for marketing sake, so they can slap a you know sticker or a thing on it that says featuring 15 recipes they felt to me very much of a piece with everything else in this book um i'm wondering i'm i gotta make i forget the name of it the potato anchovy Uh well i think it might be the first recipe temptation it's a scandinavian thing Mm -hmm. yeah that sounds awesome um uh but i'm wondering if that was always uh part of the conception of the book and how hard it was to select from you know your repertoire <laughs> you know what are there how many recipes are there a dozen 15 17 17 okay 17 so tell me about that process and yeah. decision making well i went back and forth about recipes a lot over the years should they be there should they not be there do i want them do they add do they distract uh, should they be in the front i mean should they be in the back should they be interspersed lot of questions about that and what I decided or what I settled on was that I wanted the recipes to grow out of the chapter I wanted to write in such a way that at the end of the chapter you said I gotta have it lay it on me now I don't really talk about Janssen's temptation as a recipe in the chapter about potatoes and leeks. No, but you've spent but, but pages I, and pages and pages I've going spent, on about potatoes. Right. And, yeah. and the idea of what's fabulous about potatoes is that they're storing energy and we want them in March because we need the energy, because there's nothing else that's you know fresh and growing in, in our region. And how do we release those calories slowly through slow cooking and give us pleasure that was the recipe that seemed to make sense to me 
you know, the, the, the Romanescu recipe is there and a direct outgrowth of the calzotada or zruch, the, the Yemenite green sauce follows the Passover chapter. My wife finally putting down on paper how to make peach raspberry pie and pie dough grows out of the stone fruit recipe, uh, also, stone fruit chapter. But also the pie dough thing, you have to have, I mean, she basically um, contradicts, takes exception to, as you say, the way the basic instruction is presented in almost every basic cookbook ever written. The initial, um, you know, the, 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 oh, about how, freezing. About, all, about freezing everything. Yeah. You know, that if you, if you yeah, read yeah. the way most pie dough recipes are written, something like, you know, you're, you're already doomed, yes, right? The yes, way, yes, uh, by step right. one. Yeah, Because exactly. you haven't chilled all the individual things, right? right as right. she does. Yeah. Well, you have to have the recipe after. Like, by that point in the book, I was like, there better be a pie recipe. Yeah, after. exactly. <laughs> it's there. And I, I, I think it made it in there. It's just like, I say that it's Susan's, uh, extreme direction. Yeah, you use the word extreme. Um, yeah. yeah, and I don't mean out of line. I just mean it is really detailed and really thoughtful. And and I also say in the beginning, if you need the recipe, you can't make it. And if you know how to make it, you don't need the recipe. But and that has to do with practice, right? Because I can, we can write all those directions down, or she can write all those directions down, and it's still a hand feel. You have to practice. You have to go, oh, yeah, that little bit of water that I put in at the end to watch it come together, that was too much. And that's very well explained. I think that's extremely well explained. That particular detail, I thought, was extraordinarily that's, well explained. That's Susan's part yeah. of the book. Yeah, I thought that was very well explained. But a lot of the recipe, you also, I think, pick recipes that you know are very smart for a book that doesn't have pictures that, you know, like, what's the potato one called again? I have a mental Janssen's block. Temptation. Yeah, Janssen's Temptation. Like, that is a recipe. That's a forgiving recipe. That's a recipe that's totally. open. If you're cooking it, a little more anchovy, a little more cream, a little right. more, like, it's going to be fine. Exactly. It's, you like and, it a little on the salty side, even though it's got an anchovy, knock yourself out. Like, it's going to... That's a that's a recipe that you're not going to screw up, and that's the maybe way it'll it, be better the second time you make it. But sure, the first one's you knew not going to be doing right. But it's not going to be a failed science experiment. That's right, and yeah. that's the way that I cook. So yeah. I'm I'm communicating that in that selection yeah. of recipes as well. So, okay, you spend uh, years working on this in some you know to some extent. Mm -hmm. You're a fairly. Um, uh, analytical guy you're a very self-aware guy but you spend years writing this book right so what did you learn about yourself what most surprised you if there is such a thing in this process for you about something you realized about yourself either in the present uh in in kind of the you know the 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 general sense of yourself or about a mo about some a, a time in your life where maybe mm -hmm. you see it in a whole different light now looking back at Peter Hoffman at age X. However you want to answer that. Well, the first thing that I think about is that I'm now a writer. I would, as you know, from the minute I walked into your house today, I would wholeheartedly agree with that. So owning that and beginning to think about myself in that way, you know, when I closed the restaurant, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do next. I need to, you know, my, my, my uh, LinkedIn still says I'm a recovering restaurateur. I haven't updated it. And 
so I, I didn't know what, what my life was going to look like post-restaurant. First, I needed to just detox from all of that and pick up the pieces and begin working on this project. And the project took longer than I thought it would for a variety of reasons. But I also wanted to honor the process and the timing that it took to, to write the book that I wanted to write. And so at the end of it is that I'm a writer and there'll be another book um, or magazine articles and um, a continuing to think about this, uh, this media as a way of communicating to people things that I used to try to communicate by making a dish and putting it on the menu and building a, a feeling in, in the dining room. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing in terms of what I learned. And can we just, I'm sorry to interrupt, yeah. but I, Susan gets a little credit for this, right? Because there's, you describe the moment when you're wrestling with letting go of the restaurants. And she says to you, it's time for you to, again, I'm paraphrasing, well, but she, it's time for you to embrace the next thing or something new. Well, or, I forget exactly said, what she yeah, said, but it's what, something to that effect. What she said was, and I am grateful to her for it, was if you're unhappy, you don't have to do this anymore. We don't have to do this. We'll figure it out. And, as, and I, you know, I, I think that that was bold of her to give me that freedom to not say, oh, the family, how are we going to pay for college? And what are we going to do? And, and we have to work this out. But rather to say, we have to, we have one life. We better be happy. And you can't, you've been, you've struggled with this, you've given it your best shot, you've um, reinvented it and retooled it umpteen times based on these challenges. And if you're spent and you're done, then good, call it that and we'll figure it out. And so that was huge to have that from your partner and to begin to own that and take that on. So, yeah. And looking back, did anything, as you were going, reliving all these times, did anything, again, about yourself, did anything come into a new light that you didn't see at the time? There are things that I feel like I, I, I wished I had done differently. Um, I wonder, you know, I struggled. I, I talk about, I, in, in the end of the book, where I'm talking about closing the restaurant and what got difficult. And I talk about how, how hard it was for me as a person to give up on people. To say, you know what? You're toast. You know, that is so counter to how I treat people, how I think about them. I mean, people worked hard for me. They gave their very best. And just so that in that same way that, that regulars were not, wasn't, I didn't like the term regular because it was, it, it pointed towards transactional. I didn't like that hiring and firing at the end of the day was a transactional kind of relationship and that it meant when I fired somebody or let them go that I was giving up on them and so I persisted with relationships that I probably should have cut the ties sooner and maybe my business would have been healthier in different ways 
had I been more ruthless in cutting ties sooner and going like, you know what, you're just not right for what I need. And I will find two in the bush is better than one in the hand. It has to be because I have to keep searching. And so I feel at times like I came from a, whether it was a fearful place of one in the hand versus two in the bush, or as I said, the, the idea that I didn't want to put myself in judgment of people. So somewhere between the two of those or the mix of the two of those, I wish that I had um, cut ties with certain people sooner and continued to hold to my vision of what I wanted the restaurant to be or what, we, what I wanted the restaurant to reach for. So. I don't want to quibble with your own honest answer to a question, but isn't there a part of you that's okay with that? I think it ought to be. I used to work uh, at a m- marketing company. I hate firing people. Mm-hmm. I mean, you would have thought I was taking them out back, like in a mob movie and putting two in the head. Like, I was, that's really... It's a hard that, thing. But it ought to be hard. Shouldn't it? That, I don't think... Yes, I... I've I, known I, chefs, I, Peter, who I've like literally... I'll tell you who after the interview off mic. I remember years ago working on someone. I was working with them on their cookbook. We were sitting in their restaurant between lunch and dinner. We're talking. They saw someone come in and the chef said, excuse me, I'll be right back. I was gone for 60 seconds. Came back shaking their head. I said, you okay? He said, I just had to fire that guy. 60 seconds. Yeah. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what kind of ruthless bastard? Like, how yeah. ca- I don't care how bad, how could you do that? Right. I could never, I, don't, I wouldn't want to be able to do that. No? Yeah. I, uh, I mean, doesn't I that say something I, good about I, you that it was hard? That doesn't mean that I can't have regrets. Okay. Right? Yes. I mean, all I mean is, did I learn something? Would I... That's a, that's a regret. That's something you learned. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I made those choices. I stand by them. But yeah. In the I, moment I know, they were... But I know, you were I, know what, I know how it played out. My last question for you is, you just said you've realized you're a writer. This book... We're sitting here on uh, the 25th. Uh, the book drops on the 8th of June. We're here on May 25th. Is, what's the feeling you have as this is about to become available to the general public? Is it, is it exciting? Are you a little it's, nervous? I, like, what's, well, the, what's going well, on inside you right now? As I mean, you say confidently that you're a writer. As you know, I would agree. But still, it's got to be a, a, a heady moment that this thing is about to be... This yeah, dish, this it's about to leave the pass, right? It's this fabulous. Dish, it's fabulous. It's fabulous. I love, I love that you're not qualifying. You know, it. it's very, very moving to have worked in my head, at my computer, on those recycled pages, by myself, sharing with, you know, eight or ten people. And now it's been bound and set type, typeset and put in a beautiful cover that is so expressive. And what's good is out there in the world or about to be out there in the world for hopefully thousands and thousands of people. I'm, I'm stoked, totally stoked. You know, every time a review comes in, well, you know, I, I, I lived through 26 years of being reviewed in the restaurant where you micro analyze every line uh, and and so that stuff is running again too about so-and-so made that comment and they didn't really they missed the point of the book and um, but for the most part and and certainly 
sitting here with you today and hearing your comments is um, so supportive. It, it buoys me to say that I'm heading into um, a, a wonderful moment, some wonderful waters in which people are going to read it and take away their own stories and, and hopefully be moved by it. I was in the market the other day and I ran into three chefs, um, Jeremiah Stone, Suzanne Cups, and Marco Canora, and we were talking about it. and About the book. About the book. And so um, of those three, two of them have done cookbooks, but no one's really done a, a memoir. memoir. Yeah. Right. And Marco's commented on my Instagram about the fact that at the time he was working at Dean and DeLuca, when he was working at Dean and DeLuca, he would come out the back door when the back door of Dean and DeLuca faced the front door of Savoy and that he would walk across the street and look in the window and go, that's the restaurant that I want to have one day. And I never knew that story until he told me that recently. And I was really, really moved by that, that here's, a, here's I had no idea what impact I was having. Just being who I was on the corner, the, the dingy, quiet, back eddy corner of Princeton Crosby Street, and that a chef I have really high regard for uh, was taking inspiration from my house. Anyway, when I, when, so when I was in the market with the three of them the other day, I realized and I said to them, you guys are going to love this book. And it's not, I don't think it's a chef book. I don't know what you think, Andrew, but I think this is a book for a much broader audience than that. But the chef experience is part of the book and an important part of it. And I think it's going to resonate with people who've worked in professional restaurants and professional kitchens. And so I, I looked at Marco and I was like, I can't wait for you to have this book because you are going to have fun. You are going to go, yes, this makes me happy. This makes me glad to be alive, glad to be a chef. I know why I'm doing it. He said it in a way that excites me again when I get lost because the fucking hot water heater is broken for the umpteenth time. But really the book is for all cooks who want a deeper connection between the, their connection to the earth and that they're going to get that through food and the stories of the ingredients to go. It is an amazing miracle that we have all these things growing on the planet that we harvest and give us calories and give us life. It's kind of amazing. And that's what the heart of the ingredient chapters of the book is. And so that's for everybody. It's not just for professional cooks. Thanks for sitting with me. I'm very happy for you. I can't wait to see this thing get out into the world. Thank you, Andrew. And you certainly helped me tap into some of that, that love today. And spending the last hour with you has been a, a, a pleasure and a joy. Thank you very much. And that's our show for today. My thanks again to Peter Hoffman and to Jacqueline Raposo. Again, I do link to Jacqueline's website and to her recent Grub Street article 
on the episode page for this show at andrewtalkstochefs.com. And of course, I link to where you can pre-order Peter's book on the episode page as well. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you are able to support us, please contribute via our Patreon page at patreon.com slash Chefs, or support us by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, or rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. Our thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music, Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle there is at Chef Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will see you back here soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.